Safety Third is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Patty, have you ever gone house hunting? I live in a ski town in Colorado. I can, like, barely afford the pizza here. (laughs) I mean, I've hunted for little places to split with friends. And, uh, like, in college, we crammed five dudes into a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house. Uh, Yeah, ew. Things got really gross really quickly. And when I moved to Colorado, I lived in a bunch of like really teeny tiny places. Um, But currently I live in this kind of like cozy, adorable little shoebox that is kind of like a cottage. It's kind of it's kind of like the house, the little tiny house version of a hub. Okay, well, can't relate to that part. Can relate to the part about like terrible college living situations. Yeah, gross things in college. So I asked because right now, Chris, my husband and I, we're looking at houses. Okay. And every few months he takes me to like an open house. We rent an apartment right now, but our goal is to eventually buy a house. Right. But I honestly don't know why he takes me every time. I am very bad at it. What do you mean? We're not swimming in money, so we have to look at fixer-uppers. And I do not have any sort of vision for how to make something look livable. So, like, we're walking into these terrible little houses, and my first reaction is always like, please do not make me live here. And then Chris, meanwhile, (laughs) is always, like, super optimistic, and he's just like, well, we just have to knock down this wall here and add on the kitchen here and fix the sheetrock here. So he has this ability to envision the potential in houses that I just don't have. And I thought about this ability when I heard today's interview. Mm, Okay. I think I get what you're saying here. So, pals out there, today's chat is with Auden Schendler, and he's the VP of Sustainability for Aspen Ski Co. But, Elizabeth, I'm interested to hear why this conversation made you think of looking at houses. So I think Auden also has the ability to look at a dismal situation and envision how things could look if you put in some effort. Only he's not looking at falling apart single family homes. He's looking at where we all live. I believe outdoors people can save the world. How does Auden think we can fix up our planet? Stay tuned, pals. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas, and how we come to believe in them. If you were a superhero, what would you be? Would you be like the Batman, the eco-friendly Batman? I think I'd be like the kind of discount superhero, like Shazam, not quite, (laughs) you know, not quite Superman, but trying his best and maybe a little goofy. Right, right. Like you've got the chin, you've got the cape, um, but maybe sometimes your shoelaces are untied. Kind of like that? Yeah, exactly. Auden has been involved in the sustainability and climate change game since he was in college. But... Before becoming an eco-fighting badass, he had, well, let's call them some out-of-the-box climbing and ski-bum jobs. Like, he was a trailer insulator and a burger flipper and a high school math and English teacher, and he even had a traveling sock puppet variety show. Okay, I made that last one up, but you get the picture. Those weird jobs, I think, came from 
in large part reading Jack Kerouac's On the Road as a high school senior yeah. and deciding that I needed to just fling myself out into the world and get in as much, not trouble, but get as remotely out there as possible. So mm -hmm. throughout my college years, in the summers, I went to Alaska to try to clean up the oil spill when the Valdez spill happened, and I ended up building those goose nest islands. And another summer, I hitchhiked out to Steamboat and ended up as a junk dealer for a, a guy named Cy Lockhart in Steamboat. So I did these things each summer, and what was, I think, interesting is that each time I did this, I ran into environmental issues. So when I was in, in Alaska, obviously the Valdez spill had happened, but there was a conference on the docks of Cordova talking about how to deal with this in the future. And that conference led to major environmental groups that exist today. And I just crashed the conference. I partly crashed it because I was, I was hungry. Yeah. I'd been eating peanut butter and banana sandwiches and they, they were serving fresh halibut. Yeah. But there it was. And even in Steamboat, you know, we're cleaning out this garage full of giant cowboy frying pans and huge fire extinguishers and horse harness from World War I. And I found a box of DDT, you know, the, the most legendary <laughs> toxin <laughs> pesticide in, in the history. And, and so you, it always came back to me. So when I was in, in the workforce, I always found ways to get back into environment and environment increasingly meant energy and climate. Starting in 1996, Auden worked as a research associate for the Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI. He helped corporations with sustainability practices. Then, in 1999, he began to work with Aspen Skiing Company. It's also called SkiCo. It's a corporation that owns all four of the Aspen ski resorts in the Roaring Fork Valley. Auden joined that team as a part-time environmental coordinator while still editing the RMI newsletter. Auden eventually left RMI to work for Aspen full-time, and he was later promoted to VP of Sustainability. That's the gig he has today. But when he started, a lot needed to change. Initially, we just had to get the basic infrastructure in place. There was no recycling. We started a foundation to, to give to the environment, um, and we created this department. And so as we worked, we, we kept doing things. And we'd, we'd say, okay, energy is a huge issue. Climate's increasingly this overwhelmingly obvious issue for the snow sports industry. Mm -hmm. And yeah. each time we did something, green buildings, lighting retrofits, philanthropy, environmental education, we'd say, is this enough? And each time the answer was, no, this isn't enough. We have to go bigger. We have to take more risk. We have to be more political. We have to look for bigger levers of change than what we're doing. We started with the first solar array in the ski industry, which was at the Highland Ski Patrol headquarters. Well, that was like a hundredth of 1% of our, our energy use. And does this mean anything? Not really. What can we do that's more effective? So we, mm -hmm. we realized we could retrofit a, a hydroelectric turbine into the snowmaking system at Snowmass, and that made 100 kilowatts of power running continuously for four months, it could power 20 homes a year. And that was really cool and a, and a model for the rest of the world, which is what we wanted to do, but it, it wasn't much power either. So then we said, let's, let's do something big. And we invested a million dollars in, in what at the time was the largest solar farm in Western Colorado, not, not that big, 150 kilowatts. 
and, and all along the process, we'd been in conversation with my friend, and he said, there are these guys in Somerset that run a coal mine. It turned out that the coal mine was, was owned and is owned by Bill Koch, and who, who hasn't been super progressive on climate. And he said, these guys have a methane problem. Coal mines vent methane. Okay, real quick, if you're thinking Bill Koch, like the bajillionaire oil tycoon Bill Koch, the Bill Koch who is in the news for tossing political grenades at green causes, the Republican super PAC contributor Bill Koch, yes, that Bill Koch. Methane is a super potent greenhouse gas. Over a 20-year period, it's 100 times more potent than CO2. So if you could capture this waste product and make electricity, you'd not only be getting electricity, but you'd be deleting this super carbon impact. To make a long story short, we did it. It was a, a $6 million investment of which we fronted $5.5 million. We still own the project. And we partnered arguably with our enemy, uh, the, the president of the mine, just to give you a sense of what we're dealing with, he looked like Tommy Lee Jones. He talked like Scott Glenn. He, he wore a, a Wyoming tuxedo, which is denim on denim. Mm. And he smoked, he chain smoked Marlboros. And he said stuff like, my daddy used to say, if you want to get a mule going, you got to hit it with a two by four. <laughs> you know? He was from Alabama. And we worked together with this guy, you know, someone who, who is so ideologically different from me, you know, that we only probably agreed on the kind of whiskey we liked and that, you know, that we could do this project together. And the, the project makes three megawatts of baseload power. It's enough to power the four ski resorts, 18 restaurants, three hotels. We don't get that power, but it goes into the grid and it helps green the whole utility grid. You also persuaded the company to invest in renewable energy credits and use biodiesel in company vehicles. And then you were kind of like, nah, that is actually a bad idea there. What happened? One of the things that I've tried to bring to my work has been a, a brutal honesty, which is, hey, we're going to try stuff and we're going to fail and we'll succeed. And when we fail, we're going to talk about it. And so we were trying to figure out, well, how do you get renewable energy? And the, the, the only path available 10 or 15 years ago was to buy renewable energy credits, which I won't go into explaining right now, but they, they're basically a, a certificate that says you've got the credit for green power generated somewhere else. Mm. And we did it. We we're the first in the industry to do it. Others followed us. And then I did a bunch of analysis and realized that it was a waste of money and possibly a scam. And I... I bailed on it, and I was quite public about it. Uh, and, and, and then with biodiesel, we were saying, well, how do you deal with this, this impact? We use 260,000 gallons of diesel a year in our snowcats. We've got to do something about it. Well, here's a diesel made from plants in part, and its uh, sulfur emissions are less. Let's do it. Well, we did it, and I was getting you know, furious phone calls from cat drivers whose fuel was was freezing into a jello-like substance in the cold mornings and we were getting microbial growth in the tanks and I kept going with it until US diesel standards changed and it didn't seem to make sense anymore and it was a disaster you know and it, but it was one of 
And so we stopped using it. Yeah. But it was one of many disasters we've had, which is if, if someone isn't out there pushing the envelope, you'll never make progress. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest barrier to corporate action, and I would say meaningful action, which would be advocacy, is that corporations say, oh, we're not good enough, we're not perfect, we'll get criticized. We need to get our act together before we start to move, before we say, hey, Senator, you need to do this, or hey, trade group, we need you to talk about climate. And it, it is pervasive, and I have many conversations with businesses where I say, look, you'll never be perfect, you just have to be honest. You have to say, look, we're not there yet, we're not 100% green, but this issue requires the voice of CEOs and leadership by businesses because that voice has been mostly absent and you have to move forward even in the midst of your imperfection. And corporations want to front a happy, smiley face all the time, and you didn't do that. And so corporations aren't willing to say, hey, we're not perfect, or hey, we have a long road, or hey, look how much toxic material we dumped in the river. We have to fix this. Right. And I'm arguing, no, we have to be a lot more honest. We have, we have all kinds of problems, and the truth is we're all complicit in it. So let's, let's stop the blame game, realize that, Yes, you can take a, a advocacy position on climate even if you're not perfect. And by the way, that's necessary. Coming up after the break, Auden wields his position to get political. So Auden was trying all these new things to green up Aspen Ski Co. Some of it worked, like the solar and the methane to electricity project, and some of it didn't, like the renewable energy credits. So that's when Auden realized he should start looking at Aspen's utility. It turned out Aspen was purchasing energy from a coal-fired power plant. And light bulb, Auden got an idea. You know, this is a, this is a long game. But we might have to intervene in the elections of this utility. It's a co-op that has public elections. Members can run. We need, you know, they've never had contested elections. We need to run some progressive candidates, and we need to support them, and we need to eventually take over the board. Well, we started doing that 15 years ago. It was hugely controversial within the utility. We lost multiple elections. And then we started winning. And today, that utility has a progressive board. It hired a climate scientist as a CEO. This is Holy Cross Energy we're talking about. And they just committed to 70% renewable energy by 2030. Then they said they're going to beat it by 10 years. And then they divested of the coal plant. So that, I mean, that's profound. And then simultaneously with that, One of the largest utilities in the U.S. committed to 100% renewables. That's one of the utilities that supplies Holy Cross, and we were involved in pushing on them. Now, in any of these situations, we play a very small role. 
so we're not taking credit for it. But what we are saying is that this is how corporations ought to operate. Instead of you know changing light bulbs and giving money away, they should try to to move the politics of the state and the country, of utilities, of big things. And, and these projects, again, this goes back to who outdoors people are. They're hard, they're difficult, they're incredibly frustrating. You lose, you lose, you lose, sometimes you win. We have a partnership with Protect Our Winters. We helped build that organization, and, and now that, that group has become the kind of NRA of the ski industry, of the outdoor industry, really, but for climate. And they're, they're wielding power. I mean, look, that group got involved in the election in Montana in support of Tester. And the thesis was, hey, we think we can get probably 5,000 votes by working Bozeman and Missoula using Conrad Anker and Hillary Hutchinson is a, a fisherwoman and and get 5,000 new millennial votes. Well, Tester barely won that election. He won it by 30,000 votes. Um, again, you can never say if you made a difference, but Powell had the right plan there for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and maybe that's you know that's an example. The outdoor industry is very big in a lot of purplish or even red western states where the outdoor economy is huge, mm -hmm. we can make a difference. You know, another example would be the upcoming election. Susan Collins has been like a sort of leader on climate, but not enough in Maine. Well, there's a ski and outdoor state, a hardcore one, where Powell might be able to put in a, a progressive Democrat on climate in the next election. Using Aspen Ski Co. as a political crowbar, creating and implementing clean energy systems in the corporation, the community, and the state, these are all remarkable things, and the world noticed in a big way. In 2006, Time magazine named Auden a global warming innovator. A year later, he was invited to testify in front of Congress on the impacts of climate change. And today, the outdoor industry and community recognize Auden and Aspen Ski Co. as setting the bar for the environmental agenda. And I totally agree with that. But there was something that I just couldn't shake. I need to play devil's advocate here for a bit. Aspen consumes a lot. The richest of the rich are flying in on private jets. They're driving huge SUVs. The mega mansions that are mostly, you know, vacant throughout the year. And, you know... I mean, ski resorts are not exactly the prized peach of eco-friendly things. And there's four in the Roaring Fork Valley. How do you reconcile this? The primary way is to say that's, that's all true. And on the ground, we have to do the best we can with what we control to mitigate this. And people will say, well, you should just shut up because Aspen's a place of, you know, grotesque conspicuous consumption. Look at all the jets lined up at the airport. You, you have Cloud9 restaurant at Highlands where people, you know, buy $150 bottles of champagne just to spray on each other. <laughs> you have no standing. You, you can't even talk. Mm. And my response to that is, is this not the perfect place to wield power? This is where the wealth is. This is where the power is. So we've said, look, we are what we are. How do we be the most effective and most high leverage on climate that we possibly can be? 
And so that translates into using the power we have, which is media attention, which is influence because we're a small business, which, which carries huge weight in Washington, the ability to get press and to put political pressure on elected officials, the ability to reach out to our guests who could be heads of state, right. leaders of countries, right. billionaires. Yeah. And I'm not saying we have that all figured out, but that's the, the thought process, which is how can we most effectively push at the highest level on the climate problem? This is a place where there's power. And we have an obligation to access that power and turn it to good. It's a, it's a jujitsu kind of move. And it actually goes back to the origins of the founding of Aspen, where Walter Pepke and his wife Elizabeth reinvented the community. And, and this is really interesting. He, Pepke started the Aspen Institute where he brought in CEOs. This was starting in the 50s and taught them philosophy and read Aristotle and Martin Luther King and talked about what the good society is. And then when you leave, they say, what are you going to do about it? You have a job to improve the world. You are obligated because of your position to improve the world. Pepke explicitly said, the point of this seminar isn't to make you a better CFO or CEO. It's to make you self-correcting and to send you off a better person to improve the world. The vision was that Aspen's this unique place, right? It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. it, it transcends your usual life, as Pepke said. And what if you come here and are exposed to ideas and to new ways of thinking? And in our case, you get exposed to art, to climate change, to tolerance. And, and then your mission, our mission, is to take these people and change them and send them off to improve the world. Maybe that's unrealistic, but it's the core of where Aspen came from, and we're trying to do that more and more each year. When Auden defends Aspen and SkiCo's climate change platform, detractors typically punch back with climate activist carbon footprints. The argument being something like, Al Gore's house has a 30K a month air conditioning bill, so he can't talk about climate change. And pro skier and pow riders alliance athlete brody levin flies too much to ski so he can't be an advocate for climate change auden has a great response to all this that's a, a carl rove tactic where you go from look gore understands climate better than anyone he's trying to save civilization the future of our economy and of our affluence hangs in the balance here and that's what we should be talking about. Yeah. But when you, when you then bring it down to Al Gore's house and he's a hypocrite, you've very effectively you know, taken something of monumental, even almost religious and spiritual importance, and now you're pet, you know, petty and talking about how much energy he uses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Gore should travel less. I mean, this is a trope on the right, which is, well, all these environmentalists are flying around a lot. We live in a carbon-based society to get anything done, you're gonna to have to travel. And the vision, the vision honestly, and this, this goes back to kind of recreationalists, it, the vision isn't that you, you freeze in the dark drinking warm beer. <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> the, yeah. the vision is that you, you fix the whole enchilada so that when we, when we drive to a national park, we're using electricity that's, that's renewable in our electric cars. When we fly in an airplane, 
they're very, very energy efficient if they're even if they have to use fossil fuels. When we turn our lights on or ride, ride a gondola, it's wind and solar and maybe some nuclear and, and maybe some, you know, natural gas that captures carbon and so forth. So that takes away the blame. It takes away the partisanship. It takes away the hypocrisy. You know, as a, as a ski resort for many years, we've advocated for a carbon tax and other legislation. Uh-huh. Well, that would directly affect our bottom line. But that's okay because the trade-off is pay a little now or pay a lot later. And the problem in the climate movement and in the outdoor industry's approach to climate has been that it's too much seen as an individual thing versus a collective problem. And, and that has led most corporations in the outdoor industry to focus on public lands, for example, because it's much more defensible. You don't get attacked if you're defending public lands because, hey, we do everything on public lands. But all the public lands are in jeopardy mm-hmm. if you don't solve climate. Yeah. The, the image you need is that you could click and drag Aspen down to Amarillo in 100 years if you don't solve climate change. NPR just published this story reporting that U.S. CO2 emissions are on the rise after several years of decline. And the article goes on to say that when the economy plummets, so does greenhouse gas emissions. And you contend that going green can be an economic driver. How? You know, the the whole idea around the Green New Deal that's being talked about is that there can be economic growth while we're decarbonizing the economy. So that's playing out in Colorado right now, where the reason XL, the big utility, they recently decided to close two coal-fired power plants and replace that energy with wind and solar. And the reason they're doing that is that it's cheaper. But not only that, it turns out that the fastest growing job in the U.S. is wind energy technician, Hmm. which is not a crappy job. It's a high-paying high-skilled job. So the, the idea that, you know, this is going to cost us a fortune or we're, we're going to have to lose jobs and suffer is just untrue and it's being proven out day by day. If we power an economy with new tech and we grow, are we still generating a deep impact somewhere? Well, if you're decarbonizing, let's say you decarbonize the electricity grid and transportation and home heating, which are the big things we have to do, you can still have economic growth. But, you know, you're getting at an important point, which is we can't, we just can't as a society continue to, you know, go to Walmart and buy a bunch of crap because it feels good to buy plastic junk. This is about solving a giant civilizational societal problem. So how do you, how do you legislate a reduction in consumption? And the answer is you can do something like change tax policy and make it more progressive. Right now we tax income. Well, why? You want conservatives and liberals want people to have more income so they can spend it in the economy. We tax income and we don't tax pollution. But Economics 101 says if you want less of something, tax it. So what if you, you know, income, why do we don't want less of it, we want more of it. What if you didn't tax income? but you taxed carbon. Well, that would mean the crap you buy at Walmart is more expensive. Right, right. And that's an economic signal for you not to buy that. 
The guy who won the Nobel Prize this year, a guy named William Nordhaus, who's a professor at Yale, he's just arguing this very conservative logic, which is, hey, it costs more to not deal with climate change than to deal with it. And the way to do it is to create economic signals that encourage you to consume less, not more. Right now, we're all backwards, you know, in the United States. And this goes back to the big public lands issue. We're basically giving away the fossil fuels on our public lands. Well, they're worth something and the, and the American people own it. We should at least get our money for it. So it's kind of, it's not economic or social engineering. It's just kind of fixing a free market. Right now, we don't really operate in a free market because we don't count the cost of pollution. Well, industry and community-wide, what changes are you seeing that are actually promising right now? What I really want to see happen is I want trade groups to, instead of offering opportunities to do climate stuff to their constituents, I want them to lead. So I want NSAA and the Outdoor Industry Association to go to Washington and say, speaking for our constituents, we believe we need action on climate and we're going to be very public about this. We need these big sectors of the outdoor industry to move together in a unified way and be vocal publicly on the need for action on climate. In the past, I think there was this concern that if a given corporation leads on climate, there's risk. But I think we've entered a new era where if a corporation doesn't have a progressive environmental position, and that has to mean climate, that there's risk. Have you ever felt just like giving up, like this is too big of an issue to solve? Yes. Uh, you know, my public face doesn't show that too often, but you can't read and understand the science and not be a little despairing. Right. But the, the way to look at that is that human beings have a long history of fighting impossible battles. The, you know, the Black Death in Europe, it essentially extinguished a third of the population and when that happens your whole your whole society collapses the same kind of thing happened with aids in africa and world war ii you know we say we won world war ii yeah but 50 million people died we we didn't really win that thing we destroyed europe right yeah yeah and and the stories that are most compelling to us think about j jr tolkien and lord of the rings and even harry potter they're all about taking on an impossible battle against a recurrent evil that you never defeat. In Tolkien, they return to their home hometown of the Shire, and it's completely destroyed. And, and Tolkien's been explicit about this. And so how, how do you wake up and take on an impossible battle? Well, my response is, th this is what we do as human beings. It's kind of in our blood and bones to wake up and undertake the challenge as a practice. Not, you know, on climate, we can't think of it as, we're gonna solve this thing in 10 years. No, we're gonna work on it, chip away at it, in the same way that we chip away at a, at a peak or a long ski, and we're gonna wake up the next day and do it again, and we're gonna be joyous about it because it's a, a mission greater than ourselves, a cause greater than ourselves, and then we're gonna hand it off to the next generation or the people who are more powerful, and we'll get there. But the pursuit of these noble goals, I think, is what unites the climate movement and the outdoor industry. Do you think the 
outdoors and uh, like as a community, as an industry and, and outdoor folks, are we inherently eco-friendly? I think the outdoor industry is inherently consists of environmentalists. I think they have universally failed to act on their power. And that's the disappointment is, you know, there's this this kind of stereotype of the outdoor guy who has a cool mustache like you do. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, who who skis and who's chill and, you know, who doesn't shower much, doesn't comb his hair. Uh, and who's a core outdoor person and doesn't really care about the world or society. In fact, they're dropouts. And, and that was, you know, the Yosemite culture of the, the 60s. But we need these people to be part of society and to, and to not have that attitude, to be engaged. And, you know, they, they have to protect what they care about. And so we have to make that pivot in the outdoor industry. It's beginning to happen. Uh, it has to happen not just on public lands, it has to happen on climate. And we have to have leadership where, you know, heads of organizations are willing to get a little controversial. And, and again, I'll repeat, I think there's a business benefit in this. I think for the new millennials coming online that a, a progressive, uh, a business that's progressive on climate is going to get more sales, is going to do better, and that's good. You know, this gets to economic growth. Well, they're going to do good and they're going to create more carbon. Yeah, but the business that isn't advocating and isn't green is going to go out of business, and they should. And so that's how you get to a green economy. How can we be better? We have to be less chicken shit of taking a stand. You know, the outdoor industry has wielded power but primarily on public lands. And now's the time to understand the issues in their entirety, mm -hmm. to study up on the science, and then to start taking controversial leadership positions that we'll find actually aren't that controversial anymore. How can we save the world right now, today? We can become citizens of America. And that means, yeah, at the most simplest level, voting, but at more complex levels, getting involved with local government, running for office, being on your planning and zoning commission, going to town council, being familiar with the issues, climate issues and science, and writing elected officials about them, calling elected officials, showing up at town halls and calling them out on their climate positions or praising them, writing letters to the editor. We have a gap in citizenship that I think is endemic in the outdoor industry. Again, we just want to go into the woods and be left alone. I can relate to that. But we have to, we have to return to the America that was envisioned by the people who founded this country. You know, there's a really famous story about Ben Franklin who walks out of the Constitutional Convention and a woman says to him, Mr. Franklin, what have you given us? And he says, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And I think modern events are showing that we're failing to maintain our republic. We're fundamentally failing as a democracy. The last election was a result of a lot of people many in the outdoor industry who simply didn't vote. And if 100% of Americans were citizens and voted and participated, we wouldn't just solve climate, we'd solve education, we'd solve money in politics, because most Americans feel the same about all of these issues. They're not controversial, they unite us. We don't want our politicians owned by corporate money. 
Um, we all, 70% of Americans, a recent Yale study showed wanted to solve climate. And we care about our kids in education. And so it, it's about civics. It's about, you know, in some ways a simple thing, which is being Americans. I'm wondering if the real reason that you're fighting climate change so ferociously, is that really due to the fact that deep down in your innermost core of a human being. You're just a diehard dirtbag ski bum. And I mean, climate change just means winners with fewer deep days. Do you see what I'm getting at here, sir? Yeah. Are you saying this is fundamentally self-interest? Yes. <laughs> I'm saying that you are, you, you are doing all these things that, that they seem great to be affecting our future. Uh, but really, I think, it, I think you just want more face shots or, or at least to preserve the face shots. I I right? I what I appreciate is at the end of this interview that you cheapen me so much. <laughs> and, and I want to go out on that note. It's really about, can I continue to get the sick face shots that I've always had? <laughs> we have ahead of us something that's probably the most difficult thing human beings have ever done. And it involves restructuring our entire energy system, which is our entire economy. I mean, anything you look at, touch, or do involves fossil fuels to some extent. So it's this huge challenge. And it's, it's above all, it's difficult both physically and mentally. The mental challenge may be even worse because the scale of the problem is, is so monstrous. So if you look at the outdoor community, this is a group of people that specializes for the most part in doing really difficult things. And you, you know, whether you're a training for a marathon or you know, a more appropriate comparison would be alpine mountaineers who, who do things that are just beyond comprehension. And they do it in part because they're physically tough, they're mentally tough, and they recognize that we're doing these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. That's what Kennedy said about the moon landing. He said, that's why we're doing right. it. Right, yeah. And, and, and even some of these, these athletes, one friend of mine says, I do hard things, that's what I do. And so the outdoor community is this group that has the passion they have the fitness, mental and physical. They're the perfect constituency to take on a near impossible task and possibly enjoy it while doing it. You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Auden Schindler, and to learn more about what he's doing, check out his website, gettinggreendone.com. If you like today's show, why don't you go ahead and shout it from the mountaintops, pals? Like pop music, funk, soul, R&B, metal, hell. Like all things pouring out of speakers and headphones, Safety Third is best turned all the way up and enjoyed with pals. So tune in, crank the dial to 11, and tell your friends about the show. You can find us on Instagram at safety third underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safetythirdpodcast.com. Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nakano. Alex Park edited this episode. Additional production help from Michael Stevens. Music by my big coffee snob brother, Brendan. I have luscious locks of Irish cabbage O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitzka Hall is our creative director. Becca Cajal is our executive producer, and I'm your host, Patty O'Connell.
Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember, safety third. <laughs>